nine years of ministry. Job is an interesting book because we have a concept of God as being, as being someone who's merciful, as being someone who's just, who's righteous. Um, God is the creator, majestic. And then we read the book of Job and we start to wonder. Everything we've thought about God begins to take a what seems to be a different turn. We don't quite make sense out of it. Uh, it just seems that God is almost cruel and unjust and, well, dare I say, wicked, which might be a stretch. But that's what it feels like when you read the book of Job. And the reason I think it feels that way is because we miss the whole point of the book of Job. We don't always see the bigger picture at work in Job, and it all culminates for me in today's reading, in Job 38. So Job has had a terrible set of circumstances at the, what appears to be at the hands of God and a bargain between God and, and Satan. And Job has lost everybody he's loved. He's had every kind of ailment you could imagine, illness, and yet he has stayed true and faithful to God. Now, that doesn't mean he hasn't complained a little bit along the way, and, and he hasn't been a little bit downcast at different points, because he has. But nonetheless, he's remained faithful, even uh, at, the, uh, at the expense of his friendships, who his friends are trying to uh, bring him to realize that God has abandoned him, and he constantly says, no, God hasn't abandoned me. And he feels God's presence, even in the midst of all this stuff going on. Scholars for so many different points in Christian history have really wrestled with the book of Job and how we read it. For, for many of the early church fathers, it wasn't something to be read literally. It wasn't meant to be taken as fact right off the start. But what a better understanding of our spiritual nature and our spiritual connection to God. There might be something to that. That pops back up in the writings of John Calvin in the Reformation in the 1500s. And John Calvin also pushes that envelope a little bit uh, to say that maybe this isn't something we need to try to understand literally. Maybe there is a spiritual dimension to this. We lump Job, interestingly enough, most scholars today lump Job in with the wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature tells us something. Wisdom literature shows us the way that we should behave, helps, helps us gain understanding in things that we don't normally understand. And that's the purpose of wisdom literature. And some of it's just common sense. I, you know, I, I handed different wisdom literature to my brother one time because he lacked common sense. So I said, have some common sense, Bo. You know what he did with that? He threw that Bible at me. I told Mama, too. <laughs> I'll say that my, my motives may have been unjust, but uh, he's my brother, and what, do you, what else can you do, right? You, you do these things. So here Job is towards the end of the book, and he's thinking that at this point in his journey, that he can argue his way, he can make an argument for God so that God will change God's ways. Think about that for a minute. Job's thinking that he can convince God through an argument to change God's ways, to better improve his lot. And what does God do? Well, God doesn't respond the way that Job thinks he, that God's going to respond, because Job thinks he's got this figured out. I mean, he's, he's been doing this for a while now. He's, I have got it. God, you're essentially wrong, and I'm right. 
and let's figure this thing out. What does God do? God responds and says to Job, totally blows us, as the reader, you, just, you don't see this coming. You don't see the response from God. If anything, you think there's two things that are going to happen. God's going to go, you're right, Job. Let me go ahead and give you that palace. Let me bring your family back. Let me make you feel good. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Or you think God's going to smite Job for questioning God. Those are the two things you think are going to happen based on what you've read thus far in the text. Instead, God looks at Job and says, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I put the stars in the heavens? Where were you when I laid the cornerstone? Not at all what we expect God to say to Job after Job presents a very compelling case as to how he understands God to behave and God to relate to him. God hits him with the almighty response. But yet, it's in that response that I think we start to make sense out of the book of Job. See, we tend to want things to work out our own way. How many of us here want things to go our own way? Come on. How many of us want things to go our own way? How many of us want that control? Right? We all do. Even if you didn't raise your hand, there's points in your life that you wanted things to go your own way. And that's the nature of our humanity. We like the control. We like things to work out our own way. Job's no different. Now, he's been given an unfortunate set of circumstances. But even in his faithfulness to God, he wants things to be better. He wants things to be different. But he's not necessarily thinking about everybody else around him. He's really just thinking about himself. We tend to do that. And the book of Job calls our attention to that very behavior in a very radical and direct way. That we have the ability, if we let ourselves, to be incredibly selfish. Incredibly selfish. To only long for things that help us. Sometimes we don't even consider, if you think about it, Sometimes we don't even consider our family in some of our decisions. Sometimes we don't consider our spouse. Sometimes we don't consider our children. Sometimes we don't consider our friends. Sometimes we don't consider lots of things when we make decisions as individuals and as groups of people. Sometimes we fail to enter into those larger conversations and understand the larger implications of our decisions. All of this got me thinking today. Uh, this week. How many of you saw the movie Bruce Almighty? Come on, raise them up high. I want to feel young and at heart and alive. Thank you. Bruce Almighty. It's 8.15, it was crickets. I think two hands went up. And I felt really embarrassed by the example. So in Bruce Almighty, there's a guy by the name of Bruce who thinks he's got it all figured out, and he thinks that he can do a better job than God. Does this sound familiar? Thinks he could do a better job than God. So God, played as the one and only Morgan Freeman, comes and appears to Bruce, and he gives Bruce power over just a small geographic area of God's kingdom. Now, we'll say up front, this is a pretty funny movie. It's, it's, it's comical, but yet somewhere in it, it makes some pretty powerful points, and it's a pretty good, clean movie to, to watch. Well, Bruce gets this authority, and what does he first do with all this power God's given him? Everything for himself. He does everything for himself. Every decision that he makes, he does for himself. And then as he starts to live into this reality, he sees the burden of his responsibility. Now, I have to admit, all the prayer requests that come from the people in his little kingdom that God's given him, 
come into his inbox on his computer. So he, he has a prayer inbox, and it just fills up and fills up and fills up. So he gets so overwhelmed with not wanting to spend time to read these prayers and listen to them, he just decides he's going to go into his inbox of prayers and just decide to grant all of them just to give himself the freedom and time to just be Bruce. Now, let's just go with me with this. What do you think happens when he does that? Just one word. What do you think happens? Utter chaos ensues in his little, little, I almost said, oh, little town of Bethlehem, but that would be not true. But his little part of the kingdom. Sorry, Lowe's had Christmas stuff up already. It throws me off. But in his little part of the kingdom, it's utter chaos. Everybody got their prayer request. There was no discernment. There was no conversation. And it's a mess. It's just total chaos. And I think somewhere in the midst of watching that movie and thinking about that, I realized that that's what we do if we're not careful. We create all sorts of chaos, thinking we know better than God knows. And of course, at the end of the movie, Bruce is ready to hand back the reins of his little kingdom right back to Morgan Freeman and right back to God. Bruce is totally ready to do that with a profound sense that the world's bigger than himself and that God is bigger than what he had made God out to be. That God's job wasn't as easy as Bruce wanted it to be. It wasn't easy as clicking yes to everything. That there's a creation and there is a rhythm and there is a a reason for things that we don't always understand. And sometimes we're so caught up in what we want that we forget, or really we're so caught up in what I want that we forget about the we that makes us a community, that makes us part of God's creation, that binds us together as loving beings of God whom God longs to be in relationship with. Now, fast forward to the gospel. This is a pretty familiar story. The sons of Zebedee, Jesus has now predicted his death again. And as usual in the gospel narrative with the disciples, what do the disciples do? They miss it. Completely miss it. And what do they want to do? The James and John, they want to sit at his right hand and his left. After Jesus has pretty much, in a very graphic way, told him what's going to happen, told them what's going to happen to him. Jesus said, this is where I'm going. This is what's going to happen. And their response is, yes. Let me sit at your right hand and at your left. And Jesus asked them very direct questions. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Will you be baptized in the baptism that I'm going to be baptized in? And what Jesus is basically saying, are you willing to hang on the cross? Are you willing to drink the vinegar that they're going to give me? Are you willing to have your side pierced? Are you willing to wear a crown of thorns? Are you willing to be flogged and beaten and still love the people who do it to you? Are you willing, James and John, to do that? The problem with James and John, just like us, is they are so interested in the short game. They're so interested in, in changing their lot right then and there. They want the power and prestige of a ruler, of a king, of a lord. Just as Peter. Peter gets up in Jesus' face when Jesus does this earlier and says to, he, Peter says to Jesus, sit down, Jesus, that's not how we're going to do this. I mean, that's Peter. Now James and John, in their own way, are doing the same thing. They're so interested in themselves that they're missing the big picture. They're missing this incredible gift of life that God is giving them. They're missing what God's inviting them to do. Now, in their defense, 
And in all the disciples' defense, as they journeyed with Jesus to those final moments, you, you see the transformation in them. And James and John are going to have a tough road after Jesus dies. They will both suffer at the, for the sake of the gospel. And they will find life in that reality. But in this moment, they're so stuck in wanting Jesus to be that earthly ruler that will make their lives so much different and better and make everything perfect as they see it. Not necessarily the way God sees it. And this is the struggle. This is all of our struggle. How do we participate in something that is so different than the normal way of things? How do we imagine leading not as standing in front of people and commanding them to do X, Y, and Z, but serving them. In what world and in what job and in what school and in what workplace and in what anything do you see leading like that? Where do you see power in turning the other cheek in today's time? Where do you see hope in trying to have big conversations and tough sticky spots where there's not easy solutions, where do we see power and ability to have that conversation and know that we're going to have to work really hard to figure it out? This is exactly what the kingdom of God is about. This is what Jesus is pointing the disciples to. He's not pointing them to the easy road. He's not saying that life's going to be exceptionally easy now. But he's saying, if you trust me, if you follow me, if you believe that I have some power, if you believe that I created you and I created the earth and I really know what I'm doing, and you trust that reality, Job, James and John, Peter, then we're going to find life. And not only are we going to find life for ourselves, we're going to find life for everybody because we're going to build a kingdom. A kingdom built on love, forgiveness, and grace. But you got to believe that my yoke is easy and my burden's light. This is what Jesus invites us to consider. And today, in a very radical way, we're confronted with those impediments that we build to prevent us from truly believing that God has the power, that God really created, that God knows how to tackle the issues that seem so important to us. But we as Christians and as followers of Jesus have to be willing to take a step back from our own selfish ambitions and imagine how those can be combined with my neighbor's ambitions and with those that are on the outskirts of society and how we bring that together into one community. We may not like that. Heck, I don't care if we don't like it. That's the gospel. It's tough. It's hard. But it's real. And it's true. And it's life. When we find God, we move beyond ourselves to a much deeper place where we become part of the transformation in the world. We become part of the change we want to see because we become beacons of hope, love, and grace. But it all starts with our ability to trust and our ability to believe that God is the center and the rock and trust that reality. Trust where God may be leading us. Together. Together. Amen.